Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From Equitymates Media, this is The Dive. I'm your host, Sasha Kelly. The case for reparations in women's football, it is a big statement. When my colleague Alec Renahan, who's with me today, came across it, it felt a little like clickbait. That's right, Sasha. The article was titled Women's Football, The Case for Reparations. It felt a little clickbaity, but it was the day after the Euros, the English women's football team, the Lionesses, had just won. Have won a major trophy for the first time ever. And I thought the Financial Times were leaning into it as well. But I clicked into it and I was pretty amazed by what I found. It's a pretty remarkable story. There's a whole side to women's football that we're just not aware of. So we reached out to Simon Cooper, the author of this article and the book Soconomics, to get him on the podcast to understand this story. What is the case for reparations in women's football? But before we get to Simon, let's really set the scene. Let's understand the context. Alec, tell me about the first golden age of women's football. Soccer has only one more world to conquer, the women's world. And in Italy, it's well on the way to doing it. Yes, Sasha, in the post-World War I years, we lived through the first golden age of women's football. Well, we didn't really live through it, but the world... You're looking good for your age, Alec. (laughs) The first women's international match took place back in 1881, but it was really during World War I and in the years after it that women's football took off. There's something else afoot. The electrical engineers, bright sparks to you, have challenged the munition workers, the great guns, to a football match. In 1918, an English team played an Irish team in front of 20,000 people. In the same year, the final of a women's football tournament in England was played in front of 22,000 people. In 1920, an English team played international matches against a team from France and another from Scotland. 1920 was really the peak of this first golden age. There were more than 150 women's teams in England. One match played at Goodison Park was played in front of 53,000 people with reports that another 10 to 15,000 supporters were turned away. And the game ends in a draw. How about a return match at Wembley? They packed the place. Sasha, you get the point. Women's football was pulling numbers the equivalent of male football. It was a big league and a big sport in its own right. And those numbers are massive. They would be selling out stadiums today. Well, bigger than Australia's record attendance at our A-League men's football at 51,000. And as Sky has reported, for those who still like to criticise the women's game as being somehow less important or commercially viable, here's the inconvenient truth. Women's football in the UK was once even more popular than the men's. Or, as the BBC have written, ironically, it was this popularity that crowds were often bigger than the men's games being played on the same day, which played a part in the downfall of women's football. Yeah, that downfall is what we're really talking about today. In 1921, it all changed with the stroke of a pen. And not just in England. Czechoslovakia, where ladies don't worry about bingo, they prefer to play soccer and how. After the English ban, similar bans were put in place in Germany and Brazil. 
two of the biggest football playing nations in the world. So let's go to our interview with Simon, who's written about this story in his book, Soconomics, and this article in the Financial Times to hear what happened next. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today on The Dive. It's a pleasure. First of all, I just want you to set the scene a little bit. And England have done it. Breaking news. What has the reaction been like from the English community to the Lionesses' success in the last week? There's been enormous amounts of enthusiasm. The European Championship final against Germany, which England won, had the largest TV audience in British history for a women's soccer match, about 17 million people. And there's just been an outpouring of joy. You know, the team have done public appearances, written letters to the public about how they intend to go on and on from here. And there's also a kind of feeling that women's football has been very badly treated for a century or more. And that now is the time to make amends and to promote it and to give it all the opportunities it needs. England, lionesses, everyone! Well, you've led really nicely there into what we want to talk about today, which is while women's football is captivating fans everywhere at the moment, it's not a new phenomenon. Can you take me back that whole century, back to World War One, and tell us about how women's football rose at that time? Yeah, so there'd been organised women's football in England and Scotland from the 1880s. But it really takes off in World War One when the young men go away to the front and women take over their jobs. We had in Coventry some of the key factories for output throughout the First World War. So it seemed like an obvious place for those, for those football teams to, to spring up. Um, and they started playing against one another. And then, of course, as, as they began to gain popularity, there were bigger games against factory teams from other cities as well. And these soccer teams play charity matches to raise money often for wounded soldiers. And these matches become immensely popular. Very large crowds, boys and men, as well as women and girls. And the best of all of these teams is Dick Kerr Ladies. The Dick Kerr Ladies were, without doubt, the most successful team of all time. They had a, an unbeaten run of over 320 games. Which is uh, the factory team of a Preston factory in Northern England. And they're all conquering. And the highlight is on Boxing Day 1920, they play a match at Goodison Park, Everton's home ground, which sells out 53,000 tickets. And this is really the kind of moment when women's football comes of age. More than a century before, we sort of see it coming of age again at the Women's Euro. And so, you know, women's soccer in 1920-21 had proved itself. Draw big crowds of paying customers. People enjoyed the quality. And so the men's or football authorities see it as a rival and the Football Association bans it. It forbids all clubs in England that belong to the FA, which is essentially every officially existing club, from letting females use their fields. So what did that ruling, what did that ban, what effect did it have on the future of women's football? When did it kind of be reinstated as a game that women were welcomed back into? Well, I mean, until about 1970, there's hardly any organised women's football. I mean, if, if they get a team together, they had to play on a muddy park pitch because they can't uh, rent a proper football field. There are no women's clubs organised. And so it's really not quite dead, but very nearly. And then, you know, in the new wave of feminism that starts in the 60s, you get this questioning of why aren't women allowed to play football? And so around 1970, the English Football Association and around the same time, various European associations lift this ban. So from then on, from 1970, women are allowed to play football, but they're not encouraged to. In fact, they're told that if they play, it's unfeminine. Football is a man's game. Very few clubs uh, set up women's teams. So 
even if you are a girl in 1970 who wants to play, where are you going to play? Even if you want to join a boys team, you might be stopped from doing so. So it goes from being prohibited to having second class status. And that second class status, I would say, lasts into the 2010s when there's still almost no girls teams, no opportunities for girls or women to play. So Simon, that's the story of what happened. After the break, let's talk about why some are making the case for reparations. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Isn't it character and heart and motivation as well? Welcome back to The Dive. We're talking about the case for reparations in women's football. Now, Alec, we heard from Simon about the flourishing women's football game and how that all changed with the stroke of a pen in 1921. It took 50 years for this ban to be overturned. It wasn't until January 1970 that this ban was overturned. In 2008, the English Football Association issued an apology for the 1921 rule But at that point, the damage was done. They recognised the irreparable harm it did to the women's game, which raises the idea of reparations. So before we hear from Simon about this idea and the case for reparations and what it could look like, can you actually define that word for me and what it means? Yeah, so reparations are basically the help or a payment that someone gives you for the damage, the loss, the suffering that they have caused you. The general idea being this help or payment is intended to restore you to the position you would have been in had they not caused that damage. Now, Sasha, I don't know the etymology of this word, but I imagine it comes from repair, you know, repair, reparations. You get it. I think you're on the right track with that that guess on the etymology there. And this is really important to this story. Restoring you to the position that you would have been in had they not caused you injury. All right. Let's go to Simon. I want to move now to the case for reparations, which in your book, Soconomics, you argue there should be reparations for the women's game. What do you think should be done to repair the damage? I wrote Soconomics with the sports economist, Stefan Shemansky, and we just updated it ahead of the World Cup. So in the new edition coming out ahead of the World Cup, we have this argument for reparations to be paid by men's football to women's football for the banning and the damage done to women's football that prevented it growing to what it should have been. And so the argument is more Stefan's than mine, but I'll lay it out, which is it's completely anti-competitive. It breaks all competition law to ban your competitors. If you're the regulator like the Football Association, you say, well, some teams can play football, men's teams, and some can't, women's teams. It would be like saying, well, some people can set up a fast food restaurant, but other people can't because they have the wrong gender or the wrong color. And so in any court nowadays, the judge would say, look, that's just anti-competitive. You can't do that. And moreover, if you've done that, we're going to fine you and you have to pay damages to the uh, competitors who you close down. And so in a court case now, women's football would be granted large damages. 
now we made an estimate of how much that would be. It would run into the billions a year. A benchmark is women's tennis. Oh, remarkable shots. You won't find that in the coaching manual. It was never banned. It's now organized by women. Women's tennis sports have been allowed to flourish, mostly. You know, some equal pay issues, some discrimination, but it's done pretty well. And so we say, well, look, 1921 women's football was popular. If it had grown for a century, it would be popular around the world like women's tennis is now. Football is a bigger sport. Anyway, using what judges typically award, we'd say, look, we're talking about billions of dollars a year that men's football owes women's football. And this is for damage that started a century ago and is still ongoing. And so I don't think this is ever going to come to court. I mean, it might. But I certainly think it's a way to think about what should happen, which is that, you know, men's football in Europe generates about 30 billion euros a year. A large chunk of that should be paid into women's football to help clubs set up women's teams, to have enough fields for them to play on, good facilities, better coaching uh, at the top level of the game, fund more full-time professional women's players and bigger coaching staff so that their game improves and so on. So I would like to see men's football, the leagues, the clubs, the international associations take this step voluntary. They haven't yet at all. I mean, FIFA, the Global Football Authority, uh, recently was spending more per year on its museum in Zurich than it was on developing women's football. The outside may be grey and drab, but inside, the colourful world of football comes to the fore. Yeah, I think the number you said is they've got 14 million earmarked for women's football in 2020, which is just 2% of the total allocated to development and education. Yeah, I mean, women's football is still very, very much treated as an afterthought. Now, every tournament pushes it forward. So in Europe, we've just had the Euros. In Africa, they've just had the Women's African Nations Cup. In Morocco, which drew the two largest crowds in African women's football history. And next year, we've got the Women's World Cup in New Zealand. So, you know, because there was a lag during COVID, there were no tournaments. Now we're having a succession of big women's tournaments that I think are going to move the game forward very, very quickly and increase these kinds of calls for redress. Mm. Do you think that these reparations are necessary? You did say that you laid out this argument, not thinking that it will go to court, but to have a way of thinking about the effect that these bans from a century ago had on the prosperity of the sport. I think that whether the money is paid as reparations or just as voluntary help, a kind of admission of failure by the men's game, the money needs to come. And top-class professional for men's football has enough funding, and they don't always spend it right. So the net result might be a, a fall in men's salaries. But, you know, the men's game can flourish at much lower levels of salary than it did in the past. So I don't see a problem there. Uh, the women's game needs to flourish. Now, sometimes you get these kind of male trolls who say, oh, women's football isn't good. Well, the technical quality would be lower than of the top men because far fewer women had the chance to play and to be coached well and to develop their game. So if the technical quality is lower, that is mostly to do with lack of opportunities. You know, you can say, okay, women don't, on average, run as fast or kick as hard as men, but sports is about much more than that. We understand that male and female bodies are different. People still really enjoy watching women's tennis. Women's tennis is very popular even though the very best women's players don't hit the ball as hard. They're, they're wonderful players. They're technically complete, just like the men. Yes. That's why she's number one in the world, isn't she? 
So where do you think women's football can end up? If this money comes, what what does the future look like? Well, again, if you use tennis as a benchmark, approximately 40% of the tennis economy, the money spent is for female tennis and 60% for male tennis. Now, female tennis wasn't given quite as many opportunities as men's tennis. But let's say that soccer could end up there. So you'd have 40%. Now, even if you're eating from the same market as men's football, so the pie doesn't grow, I'm sure the pie would grow, but if we presume the pie doesn't grow, but women get 40% of it, then right now you're talking about in Europe, 14 billion a year in euros. So that, you know, would completely transform the women's game. You'd have thousands and thousands of full-time professionals. You'd have academies coaching the best girls for the top. Football's coming home. And I think more importantly, you have facilities and space millions of girls around the world to play football. I mean, the thing about football, it's just hugely enjoyable. But we still see that tackle by Moore. And when Nikita scored, Sefi... It's a joy that almost all women of my generation were excluded from. They were never allowed to experience that. And I think it's beautiful that six-year-old girls today are going to experience that joy. And you'll have that with you for life. And then, you know, having played football, you can watch the best players, male and female, and appreciate them and get joy from that as well. I think that's such a wonderfully positive note to end on, Simon. So we might leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sasha. That was our fascinating conversation with Simon Cooper. Simon, together with his co-author, Stefan Szymanski, wrote Soconomics, Why European Men and American Women Win and Billionaire Owners Are Destined to Lose. The new edition with the chapter on their case for reparations will be available in October of this year. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. It really is the best way for a podcast to grow. And if you're listening because you've been referred, welcome. We have a growing back catalogue that is well worth checking out. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at thedive.businessnews. You can contact us by email, thedive at equitymates.com. And you can subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you never miss an episode. Alec, thank you so much for bringing this story to my attention today. It was absolutely fascinating. Thanks, Sasha. I don't think you should be thanking me, though. Simon did most of the heavy lifting here. (laughs) We'll share the credit. (laughs) That's so true. Until next time. The Dive is a product of Equity Mates Media. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of The Dive acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and the connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The hosts of The Dive are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.